0: Hey, y'all. My wife's biggest struggle this past year was fighting the symptoms associated with menopause, hot flashes, mild mood swings, and sleeplessness. She had them all until she tried Hormone Harmony. RLRC at checkout. That's HappyMammoth.com and use the code RLRC for 15% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seen more health issues with the dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. This twenty-minute video is packed full of tips that I've already started with my dog Phoebe. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin and coat. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com/rlrc and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com/rl R-C.
1: You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney prior to and during any question. If you can't afford one, the court appoints one for you. Do you understand your rights? or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims. My descriptions of the crime scenes what I saw with my own two eyes. If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you.
2: shackled chain, old oh, gluesome Gertie is calling my name, there is no mercy in this penitentiary, just ask the hill string gang, Rango
0: Hey everybody, and welcome to Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, complete story of America's bloodiest
1: prison. And I'm Jim Chapman, and I'm Woody Overton, and it's season five, episode five right. already. Already, time marches on, right? And and want to say thank you again to all our Patreon members. You rock. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and. Miss Linda Parker is our newest patron member, and Miss Linda, thank you, and we love and appreciate you. Hey, y'all, if you can't be a patron member, we get that too. Um, we love and appreciate everybody, and please continue to like us and share us, and continue to help us grow,
0: and, con- and continue to rate us and and uh, yeah. you know if you like the show, give us a give us a rating on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Facebook, whatever. Um, Leave a it really review. helps. Yeah,
1: the reviews definitely help. And the algorithm.
0: So uh, we've given you a bunch of different stories this year. Our most recent one was the radio, which is still going on in Angola. Uh, And this story we're about to tell you, we're going to we're going to tell you all about the crimes. We're going to then get into the court uh, proceedings and the incarceration of this guy. His name is Daniel Blank. And uh, these martyrs took place in what's known as the river parishes of South Louisiana. Um, for those unfamiliar what the river parishes are, they're classified as the Louisiana parishes that divide the Mississippi River. They include Ascension Parish, St. John, St. James Parish, and it's kind of like working your way towards New Orleans. So, Before we get into this particular killer's time in bloody Angola, we're going to tell you about the crimes, and we're going to start off with the victims. And the first one we're going to tell you about is Victor Rossi. Now, Victor Rossi lived in Ascension Parish, Louisiana, and uh, he was forty-one years old. What do
1: you kind of describe where Ascension Parish is located? Ascension is just east of Baton Rouge in just south of Livingston Parish where we're at. And y'all, when we say parishes, for you that aren't in Louisiana, we have parishes and not counties. But, uh, so the parish and county are the same things. Yeah,
0: and uh, he was a small business owner. He owned a very popular mechanic shop uh, there in the, uh, the town of Gonzalez uh, in Ascension Parish, right. which is uh, a community there. Uh, Very popular uh, mechanic shop. A lot of the police officers in Ascension Parish got their personal vehicles, and even the the Gonzales Police Department got their vehicles serviced through this mechanic shop. He wasn't super wealthy, but he had done well. He was was well off. Um, He was discovered in his home on October 27th of 1996, sadly, by his daughter. Right. He was beaten to death with a baseball bat that belonged to him, and it was found on the scene. that That's going to become important. Uh, police actively worked that case. Uh, Victor Rossi, as as we told you, was well known. He was well liked in the community. So obviously, when you when you have an individual and you have a connection to him, and the community has a connection to him, everybody starts banding together. <laughs>
1: Right, Gonzales is really the the central seat, if you will, of Central Parish. Yeah, where the sheriff's office is and the courthouse It's probably the largest city uh, in there, but it's still a, a very tight knit community. So, absolutely.
0: So they're working it and. In- you know, there's no case. They're working harder than the Rossi case. It was a shock to the community back in those days. Murders weren't common right. in Gonzales. No, yeah, no, definitely not. You, you might have got one a year, and right. that was usually like drug related. So, right. th- as hard as they worked, it there were no leads. There was no evidence whatsoever to point to a specific
1: individual. Right, and and then you know this that's disturbing, right for that small of a community. But then. Only five months later, on March 19th, 1997, in the neighboring parish of St. James, uh, the body of Barbara Bourgeois was discovered in her home. That was Barbara. Bourgeois was 58 years old, y'all. And on that day, a relative called police on, I'm sorry, on March the 14th, a a relative called the police to conduct a welfare check because uh, they hadn't heard from Miss Barbara. Now, yeah, we used to do these all the time. Uh, relatives from out of town would call, call and say, hey, I hadn't heard from Uncle Bobby. Can you ride by there and check on him? So that's what they did. Was
0: it was it common, Woody? For, I mean, typically it was probably nothing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of times they were dead. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, and, and, you know, old elderly people died in their chair. I'll never forget one. We went on, it was the summertime, and you knew there was, there was a dead body because you could smell it from outside. It was a trailer. Oh, and it was an elderly lady. And so we had to take the front door, and when it did, I almost shot my foot off because uh, a bunch of cats came running out when we kicked the door. Oh, <laughs> Lord. the shit out of me. And then when we got in there, I thought it was the most gruesome homicide i have ever seen because... She was laid back in her chair, and her eyes were were gone, like somebody cut them out. Yeah, and her ears were all shredded off. And when we got to the um, autopsy, the coroner said she have cats. I said, "Yeah, she had a bunch of them," and then, but, but she was also very disfigured, like from the heat, even though the air conditioner was on, the TV was on, she was still kind of bloated to the point where we went to pick her up. Her skin sloughed off. But the coroner said, he said, she have cats. I said, yeah. He said, well, that's what did all this. Her cats ate her eyes and her ears because they were hungry. Oh my (laughs) God. That that just popped in my head. I don't know why. Jeez. Anyway, so the the cops show up at Miss Barbara's house and they found her stabbed to death on the floor and, and, of her living room. And she had been violently beaten to death with her own vacuum cleaner. And then she was stabbed repeatedly. Now Ugh. that's horrible, right? Uh, miss Bourgeois was a pillar of the St. James community, which is even smaller y'all in Ascension. And she was an avid volunteer and special education teacher. And, and no one can imagine why someone would kill her so savagely. Um, yeah, but cops do what they do, and they, they work the scene, and evidence found in the scene pointed to a very horrific death in which this um, Barbara had fought for hard, hard for her life. And again, just like in Ascension Parish, police were at a loss as a suspect. Then on April tenth, nineteen 1997, the body of Lillian Phillip P. was discovered in Ascension Parish again. So now you got three bodies.
0: Yeah. And uh, in St. James, as you just brought up, you you know, you talk about murders being rare, even more rare than in the Ascension Parish area. St. James, uh, it just didn't happen. I mean, you know, you didn't have those. And and so especially for someone, as you mentioned, that was such a pillar of the community, this lady. Uh, was just good as gold, right? And teacher, you know knows. who who kills someone like that? And so stabs him
1: and beats him with the vacuum cleaner.
0: Totally at a loss, and as what he said, another body gets discovered just 21 days after that. Uh Lillian Phillippe was 71 years old, right. found bludgeoned to death with her own trophy. Again, a weapon of opportunity. Now you notice. Uh, in, in the first murder, it was baseball bat oh, that was there. That was there. Now it's a trophy that yeah, was there, and then it was a vacuum cleaner, a vacuum cleaner that was, was there. Ballpark, yeah. Uh, so these are weapons of opportunities. And before we go any further, I would imagine Woody is an investigator. You look for for uh things like that. What yeah. did they
1: use? Yeah, like on uh Miss Barbara Bourgeois case, that the first thing you're looking for is uh. Knife sets, you know, yeah. if she's been stabbed to death. You're working on a scene or kitchen drawers to be open. And, Oh uh, yeah. You know, obviously if there's a knife set and there's one knife missing, you know, you suspect that it could be matched up at, at the autopsy. But yeah, I mean the vacuum cleaner and all that, that shows, I doubt if the guy carried the knife in, but that shows that he is using whatever he has on hand. Literally.
0: Yeah. And, uh, And, you know, horrific. I mean, he's beating the shit out of them to death, essentially. Uh, Now, that trophy was taken from a bedroom in the house. Her body was discovered in another bedroom. And in this case, the phone wires were cut and the perpetrator killed her, then went through her safe. Her purse and then left. There was evidence to point to that. Similarities to the prior cases did include weapons of opportunity, as I mentioned, and that those weapons were left behind. Now, right. Uh, this was a different time. This was the 90s. So DNA was in existence in those yeah. things, but it's not what it is very, now.
1: Very, very infancy stages when really only came around like 1991 and 92 and then had to be proven in court. And they did not have it all the ways that they could test today. And I can remember in 2000 having a rush letter and walking the DA, DNA to the crime lab myself and still take six months to get back yeah yeah, yeah. You know, uh, they just didn't have the capability
0: and uh they didn't have cameras like they have no, today no, on every no. street corner oh, it so it's like the,
1: the phone line was cut in uh, miss lillian's house uh, you, you, nobody has nobody has anymore, phones anymore right? <laughs> <It's> landlines that's <laughs> what it's called right? yeah yeah so
0: the, uh there's a lot of differences between then and now even though it's only been you know 28 30 years since that time now uh with two murders so far in a short period, and now you've got a third, uh, the community obviously is starting to take notice. Especially these communities. Mm-hmm. This is not major cities. You're not in New Orleans here, where the you know you hear about murders more frequently. Right. This is this is just crazy weird to these people, and and, and, and so panic it, starts it, to it, set and,
1: in with the first body yes miss barber's body being a separate parish you know certainly different parishes but then we're back in ascension parish again so now investigators you, you gotta be like oh shit that's right but maybe we you know we got a connection here
0: yeah so gun purchases go up alarm install skyrocket and self-defense classes are selling out everywhere police weren't ready to say it was the same person yet, but they definitely had some suspicions. Right. Then on May 9th, 1997, just 29 days after the discovery of Miss Phillippe's body police in St. John the Baptist. Now all these, all these, uh, parishes are border each other. Yeah, they're so, connected. so you're, you're working your way South towards New Orleans. You're, you hit Ascension Parish, then you hit St. James, then you hit St. John. Right. In St. John the Baptist, uh, they discovered the bodies of two people, Sam and Luella Acuri, in their home. Right.
1: Yeah, and Sam, Mr. Sam was 76, and Miss Luella was 69. And, again, uh, when they got there to work it, it was a very gruesome crime scene. There was blood everywhere. Again, like in um, this uh, Philippines case, the phone lines were cut. And the murder weapon used was a cane knife, which, is, y'all, if you never seen one, it's a very large version of a machete used to cut sugar cane stalks, and it's very sharp. So it's basically got a long handle on it with this big-ass uh, curvature blade on it, you know, to make it easier on the backs when they're cutting down on, on the cane. So police again, worked, worked the crime scene and they left no evidence. There was no evidence left from the perpetrator, no fingerprints, no DNA, nothing. And then just five days after the Curie uh double murder, police get a call of yet another body. Yeah. So
0: miss Joan Brock, who's, who was 55 years old, uh, police found her body in the front of her house uh, after being drug out of the front door with her head practically decapitated wow. from her body. Again, phone lines were cut and the weapon used appeared to be the same one used in the Arcuri case, which yeah. was a, what they call a cane knife. Right. And, y'all, that's very, very popular in mm-hmm. in uh, south Louisiana. There's I a lot of sugarcane forms around here.
1: For sugarcane, we used to use them to clear briars and brush and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and they're, and they're no joke. I mean, right. you know, uh, if it's used on a person, it, it's horrible. Right. Um, and also in this case, a safe and vehicle were missing from the home. So this is the first time he took a vehicle Mm -hmm. from a home, uh, but a safe again, you know, in all these cases, it's robbery is appearing to be the motive. Um, Now at this point in time, you've got three separate parishes and we've, we've done uh, an episode on, or yeah, several, a couple episodes on Sean Vincent Gillis. Right who was a serial killer in Baton Rouge, and one thing that he did that made the case so difficult was he committed crimes in different parishes. Yep. Um, or he I mean, would he dump the bodies in, in different, different parishes. parishes. Yep. Um, that The reason that that makes it more difficult is, especially in this time, police didn't communicate like they do now. Com- right. Computers, all that stuff yeah, was not that, what it was now. No the Facebook was not where it would blow up with, with all these you know, announcements of murders. So police in these neighboring parishes did not realize un- t- until they really did some investigating that things were going on in Ascension Parish, St. James, St. John. John. Um, but with no leads at all, and again, St. John, another smaller parish, uh, police decide to reach out. Some detectives said, man, maybe we need to call like Gonzalez and right. call yeah. Ascension Parish and see and, if they have any unsolved and, cases. And, and
1: they would have been friends that, uh, uh, like, you know, Landry and all of them and, Ascension Parish when I work in Livingston, you, yeah, you know, them. At, uh, every once in a while, you might work something together. Send at some point they would just call your buddy over there and say, Hey, y'all got any unsolved homicides? Yeah. And, and they'd be like, yeah, oh." Tell me about it. Well, the phone lines were cut, and not that a safe was missing. Oh shit! We yeah. had the same thing.
0: Yeah. yeah, and so uh some astute detectives did reach out, and Ascension Parish detectives stated they had two unsolved murders. And when they started talking about those murders with the detectives, they realized some patterns match right. robbery and the brutality of right. the murders in particular. The phone lines being cut, all those things were the same, and if you notice, people, uh, the all of the victims were older, right? Um You know that really struck a red flag because it's it's not typical. I mean, old, older folks go home mm. and they go to bed. They're not, you know, they don't live these high risk lifestyles
1: yeah, and right. you know partying all the time. And, and uh, another thing too, uh, a lot of older people, especially back then, didn't, you know. They have collections of stuff or extra cash or whatever. They didn't want to leave it in the bank. No, they wanted it at home when where they have access to it. That's
0: right. And and so uh, police at this point are like, oh shit we we've got a we've got a lot of connections here. Um, Saint John police then contacted Saint James police, who also said, hey, we've got a unsolved murder here, Barbara Bougeois. Right. And, of course, those patterns matched as well. So police made the connection. And at this point, they knew they had a brutal serial killer on their hands without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And then on July 7th of 1997, just two months, less than two months after the Joan Brock murder, police were called to a home regarding an attack in
1: Ascension Parish. That's right. And that's crazy, right? I mean, it's not even... Uh, months between or since the first body was bound found. And then I, I wonder about bodies that they may have never yeah. found. You know, it, might, it might have been a single person or whatever that, that could have been killed that could fill these time gaps. But um, go back to it. So the m- Mr. Leonce and Joyce Millet, who were both 66 years old, y'all, um, they were attacked while they were sleeping, and the perpetrator forced um, Mr. Leonce to open the safe again, a safe where a large amount of cash was taken. So the bad guy then shot Mr. Millet in the face in the bedroom area, and then they shot Miss Millet in the dining room area. First time he's shooting. Right, people, right, man. right. And I wonder if that was, again, could have been something they found on the scene. But the, um, so, However, both of them survived, y'all, the incident, and it was the first time the police had live witnesses who could describe the appearance of the killer. And so what they did, as we did in so many cases back then, a composite sketch was done, um, but there was a lack of physical evidence, including fingerprints or DNA, and so it made locating the, the suspect difficult. And police decided to turn to the FBI for help by asking the FBI to come up with a psych, um, basic psychological profile of the killer. And that's the behavioral analysis unit that you see on TV. Uh, um, so the FBI comes in, or they'll work, and they'll look at all the different things. in on the profiles, they'll make it fit one way or another. And, and so the profile they came up with said, said the suspect will have – An obvious change in lifestyle due to the amount of money taken off the victims. Like, somebody's normally poor, now they're blowing money, right? And the suspect is familiar with and likely from the area where the crimes are taking place. The profile also said the suspect will likely leave town now that survivors exist, but for a plausible reason, so as not to raise red flags with family or friends. In they said the suspect is, without a doubt, a serial killer. And, y'all, serial killers defines um, a person that k- t- kills two or more people that unrelated um, times. Yeah. So it's not like you walk into McDonald's and you shoot five people, you're a serial killer. No, you you you're doing different crime scenes at different times and, and killing different people.
0: Yeah, and uh, Woody, let me ask you – you know, when you talk about profiling, it's 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 amazing how the FBI does this. Um and they don't always get it right. As a matter of fact, in the in the um in the Baton Rouge serial killer case. Yeah, but
1: they got the the
0: um race wrong. The the yeah. race wrong and, and uh and that can you know, some you don't. You want to lean on and take in the advice, I would imagine, of these profilers. But at the same time, you don't want to maybe lock into it so much that you totally ignore.
1: You, you know how they they get the profiles? No, they, they go into the prisons and uh, so let, let's say serial killers, and they'll give them this big questionnaire and say you can't can't get in trouble for anything that you answer, and it covers the questions It's like. Thousands of questions. And uh, it covers them from the time they can remember as a kid to the time they got arrested for their crimes as an adult. And it's just everything. A favorite color to this, to, you know, whatever, whatever, all these different questions. then they take them back to Quantico and they study them and they're able to break them down into certain groups. Wow. And said that they were so successful in serial killers. They went back and did it for serial rapists and all the major crime groups.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. And, and, and in this case, as you'll see, as we move along, they, they were pretty dead on, on their profile of this guy. Um. So shortly after receiving the profile from the FBI, uh, the police had a decision to make. You know, anytime you're working a case and and something like this is so high profile, you have to be careful what you put out there. Right. There's some things you don't want to put out there because you want to save something that only the killer would know. Right, maybe. Right. Um. The
1: hell is cut out on the crazies that call in.
0: Absolutely, yeah. and, and I'm sure you get those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, and if you'll remember people, there's a, there's a case going on right now with the Idaho serial killer Mm -hmm. where, uh, police had a ton of information, but they did not release it. And it was to the point the public was thinking these guys don't know what they're doing the whole time. They knew what they were doing. They were just very smart about it. They didn't want to tip off the killer. Yes. Um, so this was a similar situation to that, but at some point you have to say we've got to release some things and get the public's help.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, out of fear of if we don't, uh, well, we might be missing out on um, some information. But more importantly, if if someone gets killed by this person again, we uh, could have forewarned them. Yeah. So they do. They release
0: the sketch that was made. Of the uh, of the suspect and the results from the FBI profile, and they even open up a tip line. And as you would imagine, they get a massive response. And I'm sure some of those were from the crazies.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got everything from you know, there's a shooter on the grassy knoll to, to Martians to whatever, right? But one of these tips was received from a video poker worker in the River, river Parish area. And that, y'all, that's somebody that, you know, who, who um, will work on these machines or collect the money and stuff, and part of the, the money goes to the establishment, part of it goes to the state of Louisiana. So, but the worker stated that there was a regular whose spending habits dramatically increased and looked similar to the composite drawing. And during the interview with the worker, the worker stated that the suspect had started wearing expensive jewelry and had just purchased a brand-new motorcycle,
2: Mm. Yeah, right.
1: So we just like the profile said, and when asked what the suspect drove prior to the motorcycle, the worker stated it was a pickup truck with a boom in the back to lift engines. That's a big clue. Right, right. That's a huge clue. You don't see many of that. No. Uh, um, This information was then passed on to the detectives with the guns, Dallas police department. And it caught the eye of a detective uh, Dow Bryn, and Detective Wren actually knew an individual who drove a truck fitting the description by the name of Daniel Blank. And not only did he drive a truck with the boom in the back, which is rare, but he also knew Daniel Blank used to work for a good friend of his who was, guess, Victor Ross, who, who was the first victim, of the, uh, the murder victim in our in story. Ah, uh, that's huge. Yeah. And, uh... And again, we said Gonzalez was a small community and everybody knows everybody. Right. And you know, you say it
0: a lot on real life, real crime that, uh, you know, don't hesitate if you think something is important right. and they police are putting the case out there. Don't hesitate to mention it. This video, these, these people who worked at these video poker places, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they saw this guy all the time. Right. And had they not called in and mentioned any of that, there's they no had telling had, how many more.
1: They've never known anything. So the people, you know, I joke about the, the crazies that call in, but um, don't ever feel stupid about your information or whatever. Just call it in, no matter how small, because you never know what's, what the case is going to break the case. The tip's going to break the case.
0: That's right. So uh, the D- detective Dal Brin you know, he gets this to the detective actually working the case, which was a individual by the name of Detective Tony. And uh, they start looking into Daniel Blank. Um, detective Tony proceeds to his last known address, which was in Sorrento. In uh, Sorrento just is uh,
1: just north of uh, Gonzales, just north like, of like
0: Gonzales in the essential parish. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he encounters someone by the name of Dorothy Racher, who is the mother of uh, the suspect's girlfriend, Cynthia Ballard. Uh, Racher tells the officer that Blank did not live there anymore, but indicated she would try to get a message to him. So get this, y'all. About 15 minutes later, Blank calls mm-hmm. the detective. At his office, as soon as he walks in the office, somebody yeah. says, "You got a call from a guy named Daniel Blank," yeah. and um, and so the officer ad- advises Daniel Blank that he wanted to question him concerning some murders that had occurred in Livingston Parish. And as a matter of fact, we're going to go ahead right now and we're going to play you that phone call in uh, Ascension Parish, right? Yes, and and um, we're gonna we're gonna play you that phone call of Daniel Blank calling, and, it, and it's apparent, if you ain't figured it out by now, that as soon as he left, the mother of the girlfriend right. called him and said, the police are looking for you. Right. So, here's that. Hello? Yeah, uh, this is Dan. So, my call?
3: Him? Yeah. I him that the yeah. From, uh, yeah, that's me. Sergeant Tony, with the sheriff's office. Uh-huh. We work in cases over here. Uh-huh. And yeah, your name came up in it. Okay. There's some elderly people that's been murdered. And one of these people you used to work for, Mr. Brock. I worked for him many years ago. His wife was murdered and she's one of these elderly people too. Yeah. Wait, you living in, on uh, Alaska now? I'm living in Texas, yeah. What kind of work you doing now, uh, Daniel? Mechanic work. No mechanic work? Yeah. Did you come into any money lately? Uh, yeah, I want the money to the sale. How much money you want? I oh, close to $50,000, I guess. $50,000? Uh. Uh-huh. You going to be back in Louisiana any time, sir? Well, I'm supposed to try to go down there
2: this weekend. This weekend? That Let me I give you know? my name, and when you get in town, I'll give you my patient number and you call me. All uh, right, all right, right. right.
0: Now, you just heard in that clip... Daniel admit not only uh, that he had known one of the murder victims but that he had also come into a lot of money. The detectives were support you know at this point they're believing this guy is not only a hot suspect
1: he's likely the guy that did it. Yeah. So well now they're gonna they gotta stay focused on him until they can prove or disprove it right. Mm-hmm. Daniel
0: blank he agrees to come and meet with the officer on the following weekend and to bring proof of his gambling winnings uh, blank apparently returned to Louisiana from Texas where he, he he was living at this point and left documentations concerning his winnings at the casino with miss Reacher his girlfriend's mother uh, the detective detective Tony collects those documents and he conducts a background check uh, on Daniel Blank to determine whether his income could support his gambling activity at the various casinos. So get this, y'all. When you put that card inside of the uh, uh, machine to get your points, which you don't realize is going on, or some of you may, but it's tracking your winnings and your losses. And this was where they did something really smart. Um, they issued subpoenas to these local gambling establishment, and it showed that blank had a run total, have run a total of two hundred and sixty-nine thousand dollars at three casinos. Wow. He cashed out a total of two hundred and twenty thousand two hundred and sixteen dollars. So he had a, a net loss of almost fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. Managers at the treasure chest casino uh, indicated that based on Blank's wagering history, he had a player profile of a corporate executive with an annual earning of over $200,000. Wow. So that's how casinos can actually break this yeah. stuff down and and try to figure out what you mm-hmm. do for a living. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Um, how,
1: you know, how many rooms to comp you or buffets or whatever. That, uh, that's back, right. Keep you playing. And
0: they know if you're winning or losing. Yeah. So um, you know, to contrast that with what reality was of Daniel Blank, which is something these police did, the Louisiana Department of Labor records revealed that Blank had no reported earnings for 1997, and annual earnings of only thirteen thousand seven hundred sixty-seven dollars. Yeah. Well, Lost
1: like four times that amount. <laughs> yeah, and
0: five thousand four hundred ten dollars in 1995. So. Uh, Department of Motor Vehicle Records said that uh, Bellard and Blank had purchased a pickup truck, him and his girlfriend, a station wagon, a motorcycle, and a utility no trailer shit. in 1997. You got no job. And you, you got, got no job. I was paying
1: 5000
0: That's right. And the task force also learned that on July 15th of 1997, Blank had purchased a mobile home uh, for $22,000 in Onalaska, Texas. And so, you know, Detective Tony has all this information. He calls uh, Blank again, and he says, look, man, you need to meet with me and kind of, you know, we can go over this stuff and see where you're getting this money is the way he kind of, you know, trying to spend that. Um, Blank says, okay, I'm coming down this weekend. Never shows. Never shows up. So... um, so, police at this point they know um, that that they're dealing with somebody who
1: is ninety nine point nine percent the killer of they, these. They, they definitely can't get off of him now. That's they, right. The, the the more they go, the more information they get, the, the makes it look worse for blame. Yeah. So they they
0: start digging into his background. They start trying to connect some dots.
1: Right. So y'all and the police were able to connect Daniel Blank to every one of the murder victims um, you know listen to the connections that they made uh, Victor Rossi blank worked for him right Miss Joan Brock blank worked for her husband Barbara Bourgeois, lived blank lived close to to her for a time um Ms. Lillian Philip P had actually bought all auto parts from her husband. Uh, the Curie's girlfriend's employer was right across the street from where they lived. Mm. Uh, they also knew robbery was the primary motive and Daniel Blank had a bad-ass gambling addiction. Well, he sure did. And so if you're an investigator at this point, Woody, what are you thinking? Um, I'm riding and, and Keep digging, keep digging to, yeah, I definitely think it's him. But keep digging and digging and digging till so you can get that probable cause because uh, um, it's a murder. Yes.
0: And so police, uh, eventually, you know, they're, the issue they're running into is he's in Texas. They're in Louisiana. Right. And, you, you know, you have to have the problem in all these cases is they had no physical evidence. Right. So technically— all they had to go on was a ton of circumstantial stuff, and they couldn't force
1: Daniel Blank to meet with them. Right. Uh, let me interject real quick. So, look, I heard it told in a murder trial like this on, on the types of evidence we're talking about. If you're standing outside and the clouds darken and, and it's cold and you see snowflakes actually coming down, uh, you see it and you feel, and they land on your head, they land on your face. Um, you know, that's direct evidence, right? Now, if you're inside and you're getting ready to go to bed and you look out the window and the, there's no snow on the ground, it's dry, but it's cold and the same clouds are there. And you go upstairs and you take a nap, you come back down and you look out the window and then your know, yard is white, six inches of snow, right? Yep. You reasonably can assume that it's snow. Right. You didn't see it directly, but you, have, reasonably you can assume, and that's what's going on with Blank. Uh, They got all this, yeah, hey, we were taking a nap, but look at all this evidence. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, um, that, yeah, they didn't have that direct, they didn't see him do it, they don't have the DNA or whatever yet, but they all, everything points towards him.
0: Everything's pointing that way, and after he kind of stood him up, and did not show up, when he said he would, to talk about all this, uh, the detective said, "Well, we're going to go to him. Absolutely. So That's they knew right. where he lived in in what was now on Alaska, Texas. And so Detective Tony, accompanied accompanied by members of the task force, including Officer Bren, Lieutenant Benny Delon, Detective Todd Email." And FBI agent David Sparks proceed to Onalaska to interview him. And they were armed with search warrants for both his home and his business. He had a business there. So the task force encounters him on November 13th of 1997 when they arrived at his place of business. He had a business called Daniel's Automotive, and he readily agreed to accompany these officers to the Onalaska Courthouse. And so for the next 12 hours, Detective Tony and other members of this task force questioned Daniel Blank first about his spending habits and later about his participation in the murders. Now, in the interview, they were hammering him, absolutely hammering him on money. That's obviously um, where they felt like they had a really strong case. Remember, we told you. They went back through his background. They tracked his gambling spending. He was $50,000 in the hole, yet he was driving uh, a car in Texas that he paid $20,000 cash for. Mm -hmm. Uh, He paid like $20,000 for his trailer that he was living in there, uh, all cash. And he furnished it with like $1,000 worth of furniture. And they knew as a blue-collar mechanic – uh, he was making in the neighborhood of about 40000 a year, even if he was getting paid cash. Well, Daniel um, Daniel Blank was trying to explain this away by saying these were gambling winnings. This right, is,
1: right. where are you getting this cash? Oh, I went in at the yeah, casino. What and, they're doing is they're locking him into his statements. I mean, it, uh, well, they've asked him a question about it, and, and he, oh. I wanted a casino, right? That's your story, right? So you lock him into it, and then you come back, circle back around, and do what they're about to do.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so they kind of lay it out there, and they say, "Look, we we've been tracking this. You know, we know how much you've won and lost at the casino. You're in the whole fifty thousand dollars, Daniel, and you didn't make by five grand last right. year. Um, and you can see in this interrogation that he's just. It's pressure, man. This guy's feeling a lot of pressure, and and these these uh, detectives are really astute at interrogation. So they ask him at some point they, if he would agree to p- take a polygraph, and they they do see three separate polygraphs, and Daniel Blank
1: fails every one with flying colors. Yeah, so we're talking about um, they probably did three different ones. On because of the amount of victims, and there's usually three questions that are directly related to the the, the victims. Uh, uh, instead, they don't say, "Did you kill Miss Barbara?" You never do that because that's an emotion-evoking term. You'd say something like, "You know, did you know Miss Barbara Bourgeois? uh, uh you can to get them to say, yeah, and say, have you ever harmed Miss Barbara Bourgeois? You know, defining that as you know, everything from punching her in the mouth to, to beating her with a vacuum cleaner, and you get them to say no. But the question on the test would simply be, have you ever harmed Miss Barbara Bourgeois? And it would come back as deception indicated, which they're saying he took three separate tests. I would say, I would assume that they're on three separate issues, and he had deception indicated to, to all of them. Yeah, so,
0: uh, and you have to remember, this is over a 12-hour time period. So they are trying to also emotionally connect with
1: Daniel Blank. Um, The the polygraph is is just an interrogation tool. Yeah, it's it's not not, even admissible. Well, it is if both sides agree to it, which which they're never going to do. But you use it in the right hands. You use it to break a person down. I've had people sitting in the chair all cocky and confident by the time I got done they were slouched down almost crying Yeah. and, and when I tell them that they fail, you know? yeah. so that's it's strictly you're right that throughout this whole 12 hours they're making personal connections and breaking them down breaking them down hammering them to get to get the Chiefs
0: and to tell you some interesting uh, interrogation techniques that Woody can kind of back up here uh, with some first hand evidence when they when they first got to the room, this interrogation room, and it's just like you pictured on TV. It's a big table. Um, and there's two detectives and Daniel blank. And initially when they walk in the room, Daniel blank is sitting across from one of the detectives. So the detectives say, "Will you sit here and they pointed to the end of the table and had Daniel blank sit there. And the detective explained that, You never want anything between you and the guy you're interrogating. Um, You can't,
1: it's almost a a barrier. Right. As you're doing it, and as interrogation goes on, the connection goes on, you close that distance. I uh, close this distance with the person that you're interrogating, and you may have to put your hand on their knee and and get closer. And some of them you got to cry with, and some of them you got to pray with, and some of it just, Everybody's different, but, yeah, I would always close that gap and make that personal connection because even a hard-ass, if they believe that you're maybe trying to save their life or whatever and you get on them and they just – most people want to unburden. Mm -hmm. And you just got to get in there and get it. Yeah, so he – and that's just
0: what these detectives did. And the the detective that was actually leading the interrogation, he noticed that every time he brought up Daniel Blank's mother – Daniel blank would emotionally interact with that. He, he would get upset. Um, his Daniel blanks mother had passed away three years before, uh, this interrogation and they knew that. And so he brought Daniel blanks mother up intentionally, um, to see if he could get a reaction. He noticed it would kind of break Daniel down every time he did that. Right. So he did something very interesting in this interrogation in that he turned to him and he said, you know, your, your mother would want you to admit mm-hmm. that you did wrong and take responsibility, Daniel. That's what she taught you right, to do. Right, right. And he's literally, y'all, putting his hand on Daniel mm-hmm. Blank's shoulder as if he's his friend. Right. And he's saying, you know, she would want you to do this, and it, it is the most bizarre thing. You can literally see him
1: break—like physical connection—and and,
0: almost like know, he was having a heart a mom, attack,
1: right? Using a mom against him,
0: so he does. He he breaks, and um, and he confesses to these killings, and and uh, we'll get into those in the next episode as we as we go through the trial and and the the aftermath of that but because he does give some details that we have um but he he confesses to these these killings and uh he confesses to every one of them eventually over time the detectives then you know formally arrest him and they bring him back to Louisiana. And we have a, new, uh, a uh, article that we're going to read you, uh, Woody's going to read you from the New York Times that is dated November seventeenth, nineteen 1997. And it contains some details that we definitely didn't want to miss
1: of so Woody's going to read right. you that article. And again, y'all, now and with his confessions, he's, you're outside and you get to see the snake. Right? Not yeah, only did it right. look like it was about to snow, it is actually snowing. It's a blizzard. So this New York Times is titled, Mechanic Held in Series of Killings. Police in Louisiana say gambling habit motivated the suspect. November 17, 1997. So basically a year after the first murder, or, or almost a year after the first murder. So it says... At the Airline Motors lunch counter in Sugarcane Country, a rifle shot away from the muddy churn of the Mississippi River, the talk about Daniel J. Blank is as straightforward as the food served here. He was a gifted mechanic, a quiet customer with deep blue eyes, a family man who drank his coffee black. But last week, Mr. Blank was jailed and arrested on three charges of first-degree murder. The local authorities said he had confessed to six murders, including... A double bludgeoning of an elderly couple just across the street from the diner. His arrest was a big event in a town that often goes a year without a killing and stirred the memory of a waitress, Gloria Vickner. Only a few months ago, Mr. Blank, the son of a sugar refinery worker, emerged from the video poker stall in the back of the restaurant and asked her to change two crisp $100 bills. A lot of money for a man who usually order only black coffee, Miss Vigner said she made the change, but thought nothing of it. They say it's always the quiet ones that'll surprise you. He was extra quiet, she said after the rest was announced. Of course, I was lucky. He went after wealthy people. I worked for a living, thank God. A quest for the big win and a lust for a piece of the American dream, the police said, was what drove Mr. Blank to kill six elderly residents within 20 miles of his family's home in the river parishes. A waterbound stretch of chemical plants and sugar cane between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Most of the dead were elderly. Most were found in their homes with their pockets turned inside out, and nearly all had at least a nodding acquaintance with Mr. Blank. One couple survived being beaten and shot, Leon Millich Jr. and his wife Joyce, both 66, of Gonzales. The authorities said Mr. Blank had killed to feed a gambling habit. He favored slot machines and video poker, acquaintance said, and visited many different gambling parlors. Toward the end of his, his suspected string of killings, Sheriff Wayne Jones of St. John the Baptist's pair said, it became apparent that Mister Blank was either on an extraordinary lucky streak, or was up to no good. Authorities estimate that he had stolen as much as two hundred thousand, much of which he was believed to have squandered at the casinos. He was without a question a gambling addict. Sheriff Jones, Attic, uh, Sheriff Jones said, "I guess you could say his income didn't quite correspond with his lifestyle." <laughs> He has confessed to these murders, the authorities said, which occurred between October 1996 and June 1997. Victor Rossi, 41, of St. Amont, Barbara Bourgeois, 58, of Paulina, Lillian Philippe, 71, of Gonzales, Sam McCurry, 76, and his wife Luella, 69, of Laplace, and Joan Brock, 55, of Laplace. Mr. Blank is to be arraigned in Laplace on Monday. The police have given little information about the case, saying only that a tip had led to the rest. But their relief is obvious. It was the first homicide we ever we experienced since 1986. Bill Landry, the Gonzalez said, "Wow, right?" And I actually know him; he's a good dude. Uh, we weren't prepared. We had to retrain ourselves. His office handled three of the cases: one murder in April and a double murder attempt in July. Acquaintances and family members said that since the killings began late last year, Mr. Blank had lived at a notch or two above transient status, making three moves in the river parishes and then moving in the summer to a small resort town in eastern Texas. Mr. Blank was taken to custody in on Alaska, Texas on Friday, about four months after he reportedly tried to buy a four-bay automobile repair shop there for 65000 in cash. During this time, Mr. Blank periodically appeared at his boyhood home, a jumble of trailers and a frame structures in Paulina, west of Laplace, to report on his new fortune. Mm. Once Mr. Blank, known as Bone to his family, wheeled into the dusty yard on a shiny red Suzuki motorcycle. On two other occasions, he arrived with huge cardboard copies of checks from casinos in nearby Kenner and Baton Rouge. Checks payable to Daniel Blank, totaled $33,000. Daniel went to casinos pretty often, said Mr. Blank's sister, Sally Blank, a 34-year-old cosmetology student and one of eight siblings. He said he won big, and he showed us the papers to prove it. He told us they took his picture at the casino. Sally Blank said the family had taken her brother at his word and had been shocked by his arrest. Her brother had been in trouble before, Miss Blank said, but not since he was a teenager. He burned down a building when he was a teenager and had to go to reform school, Miss Blank said, but a lot of the teenagers get in trouble. I don't think he did it, at least not all alone, not all by himself. Mr. Blank had apparently been living quietly in Onalaska, a small town a few hours from Houston, in a double-wide trailer with his wife Cindy and their four children. He was working as a mechanic out of a former muffler shop he leased from Don Evans, a retiree in Onalaska. What happened was the mayor referred him to me. Said he was looking to buy a piece of property. Mister Evans said I leased him the shop, although he did offer to buy it. Said he'd pay me sixty-five thousand in cash. That kind of scared me. Mister Evans said I refused. Mister Evans said he was later told by his twelve-year-old daughter, a friend of Mister Blank's twelve-year-old daughter, that that Mister Blank had made a fortune playing video poker machines. To Mister Evans, Mister Blank was an expert mechanic. I've been at this for 35 years, Mr. Evans said, and just from talking to him, I knew he must have been born and raised a mechanic. That boy knew transmissions inside and out, and I don't know about all the gambling nonsense. It seemed to me he was interested in being successful in business and living in a way he had never been able to as a kid. Well, the problem was, Mr. Evans said, Mr. Blank nearly broke when the Louisiana and Texas authorities surrounded his trailer on Friday. Among the items recovered, according to the news accounts from Texas, was a cane-cutting knife, apparently smeared with blood and hair. Uh-oh. Right? Mr. Evans locked the repair shop after Mr. Blank's arrest. As he went through the jumbled contents of the office, he said he came across the latest bank statements of Daniel's Automotive. He had $123 in it and 11 cars and a lot waiting to be repaired, Mr. Evans said. Thank God they arrested me and said I tell you what, I think he was just about ready to do it again. Yeah. Hell, and hell, hell of
0: an He yeah. was running running low on money, brother. And yeah, I yeah. thought that was very well written. Yeah.
1: Really and well. uh nobody find. reads him better than what he does. Yeah. yeah, that was a good find. That was a hell of a, you a really know, good piece. Christopher Cooper wrote that, y'all. Shout out to him.
0: Yeah, shout out to him and and uh we we're not even uh, scratching the, surface. Scratching the scratching. surface
1: of what you're going to hear right. in the, in the second uh, episode of this. I don't know how there's not been a movie about uh, Daniel likes people have contacted me over the years about it. And I, I think you and I talked about it before, but this is a bad dude. Man. He's a bad dude.
0: And uh, and we want to put this out there uh, because we did this before and, and it worked. And, and uh, of course, one of our, Favorite episodes of all time was when the detective, Donald, Mr. Donald Donald Duck Sharp, Sharp came in uh, just a few weeks ago and did an interview with us. If any of the detectives that work closely on this case would be willing to come on uh, Bloody Angola and do an interview with us, we'd love to talk to you. If any of y'all know these detectives, uh, reach out to them and and
1: tell them uh, we'd love to uh, talk to them about it. So you're talking about... 2007, 17 over 25 plus years. Ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, uh, uh if you want to you know, reach out to us, we'd love to talk to you.
0: love to talk to you and, uh, and stay tuned. Cause next week we're going to get into the, the, you know, immediately following the arrest and, and there's some interesting things we haven't told you yet right. that are going to make you say, Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. so look for that, uh, Thank you to all the patrons. As we yes. said at the beginning, uh, please rate, comment, subscribe, yeah, and leave a review. Leave a review and follow us on, on uh, your favorite network as we work to spread the word. Yes, indeed. And until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. Um, what do you have? For? Your host of Bloody and Angola. A podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest
1: prison. Peace. Peace.
2: I walk a straight line, shackle chain. Oh, and Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just as the hillstring gang orangle of three.
0: Com. It's faster, bro. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Asta Pro and Go.
2: It's springtime, boys. The grass is green, the birds are chirping, and the kids will be out of school soon. That makes it the perfect time to plan a family vacation.
0: Day. Sayonara! Sayonara. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, the
1: story of America's bloodiest prison. And
0: I'm Jim Chapman,
1: and I'm Woody Overton. We in part two, part two, baby, of the, the River,
0: River Pairs. Yes, and um, and so we'll just just real quick, uh, where we left off in part one. Uh, of course, Victor Rossi, October 17th of 1996, was murdered uh, on April 9th of 1997. Lillian Phillippe was found murdered on May 18th of 1997. Barbara Bourgeois, uh was found murdered on uh, May 9th of 1997. Sam. And Luella Acuri found murdered. May 14th of 1997, Joan Brock found murdered. And July 7th of 1997, the attempted murder of Leonce and Joyce Millett. Uh, and on November 14th of 1997, Daniel Blank finally arrested in Alaska, Texas. So we're going to pick up from that point. Right. They bring him back yeah. to Louisiana. This is after he confessed, y'all. And this is look, these are these are small town detectives. Right. And they got a serial killer mm-hmm. in the back of that vehicle and one of the the comments that the detective made was when they pulled into the parish you had Droves of people on both sides mm-hmm. of the road to give you, you know, right. goosebumps, and they're cheering, right. and these detectives that you know this meant something. This community, right. Right. what these guys have done. So they start, you know, obviously you get back, and what do you? Now you've got this, you know, this guy off the street, and you're starting to piece things together at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, Just
1: because you make an arrest doesn't mean the case is over by a long shot. You're, yeah. you're going to continue to work and get gain or more, more evidence to get the prosecution ultimately, and
0: especially one like this where it was, there was no physical evidence. Right. You know, uh, for, I don't know if it, I'd say he was smart enough, but for whatever reason, he didn't leave behind fingerprints. Right. He didn't leave behind DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was amazing considering the brutality
1: of these killings. I would imagine he was gloved up. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. Uh, he he was. He wasn't a dummy. No. Yeah, it it doesn't mean he was formally educated. He just. He he was smart. That's
0: right. And so they do. They start investigating it, and guess what
1: they do? Here we go, y'all. Not only um was he arrested, but his girlfriend was arrested. And we'll go to an article It says Destrehan. Y'all, that's another uh, town in St. John, I believe. So uh, the article from the AP wire says investigators have arrested the woman who lived with Daniel Blank in Texas saying she drove the accused serial killer to the homes of the people he killed and robbed in Louisiana river parishes. Mm. Cindy Bellert. 35 was taken into custody late Monday evening at her sister's home in Destrahan. Bellert, who moved with Blank and their children to On Alaska, Texas, in late July, knew his intent, Authority said. Sheriff Jeff Wiley, and then I'm going to interrupt real quick. I've worked a lot of cases with Jeff Wiley. I think he's a, a, a state senator or something now, or something like that, but he's, he's retired. Retired from the sheriff, and he's a great guy. But it says, Sheriff Jeff Wiley said she was booked into the Ascension Parish Jail, one count of principal to first-degree murder, two counts of principal to attempted first-degree murder, and principal to aggravated burglary. Blank 35 was booked last week on charges of beating and stabbing to death six River Parish residents from October 1996 to July 1997. He tried to kill two more people in an attack on Gonzalez, the authorities said. Authorities said Blank, who robbed to support a gambling addiction, has confessed. It was that gambling habit that eventually cemented the case against Black, Wiley said. In Texas, where Blank was picked up for questioning last Thursday, Polk County Sheriff Billy Ray Nelson Jr. said authorities had been tipped to Blank's lavish spending at Louisiana casinos, including one where Blank was throwing around $100 bills as if he were a wealthy man. One of the houses where he killed, he stole $100 bills, Nelson said. Nelson said authorities weren't expecting the confession when they searched his auto repair shop and home last Thursday. But about eight hours into interrogations, Blank began giving details of the crimes, launching into half-hour accounts of each attack. Nelson said, In one incident, he told investigators how he had killed a woman in her backyard and then dragged her into her home, Nelson said. In some cases, Blank told authorities he lurked around the victim's homes for hours before killing them. What he said was just so creepy, Nelson said. Wiley said Blank would hang around the victim's homes in the dark of late night or early morning, hoping the occupants would eventually leave. Unfortunately, the people didn't leave, Wally said. Leonce and Joyce Millett, both 66 of Gonzales, survived an attack in their home last July. The victims in the other attacks were Victor Rossi, 41, of St. Amal, Barbara Bourgeois, 58, of Paulina, Lillian Philippe, 71, of Gonzales, Sam McCurry 76, and Luella Acuri, 69, of Laplace, and Joan Brock, 55, of Laplace. Wiley said Blank often used weapons he found inside his victims' homes. Wiley said he didn't know if Beller would be connected to Blank's alleged crimes in, in other parishes. Efforts to contact other authorities Monday night were not successful. Wiley said Bellard was questioned when Blank was arrested in Alaska. Bellart told investigators that she and the children were returning to Louisiana to stay with her sister and brother-in-law in Destrehan. Investigators always had a strong suspicion that Bellard had helped blank while he said adding that it was impossible for her to have lived with blank for several years without knowing of his crimes in some cases blank stole victim's cars to transport stolen safes which he took to his home in Paulina to break open while said he said two of the safes have been recovered one in St. John and one in Ascension She's living with a man spending a significant amount of money with very little income. While he said he's gambling, buying a house, tools, setting up a business, someone living with him had to wonder where all that money was coming from.
0: Right. Right. And great article. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, that to them was also a piece of a puzzle because remember, no physical evidence. Um, So. If you're thinking like I'm thinking, and I'm sure Woody's thinking, uh, you can look at this girlfriend two ways. You can look at her as a suspect, yeah. or you can look at her as a witness, right. and they had more value in her as a witness. Right. Um, they were concerned. They were concerned because although they had a, you know just tons of circumstantial evidence, and cases do get... People do get found guilty, you know, strictly on circumstantial in some cases, but it's a a roll of the dice. Right. So, what do they do? They go to her and they say, Look, we'll go ahead and we'll drop these charges against you. We'll drop them all, but
1: you got to agree to testify against. Yeah. You got to give up the juice. Right. And, and, you know, certainly she had to know.
0: Absolutely. And so, what does she do? She says,
1: Hell yeah. yeah, Because y'all look when she principle two means you're just as guilty yeah. and she's looking at every uh charge that he's looking at and give her give her the out but yet yeah, i'm sure it was the prosecutors they're like hey you know what well, first of all hey they have to agree to drop charges if she testifies but they needed her to testify that's right they they
0: needed it de- desperately in this case so she agrees. she says uh I will testify, and and they say you testify, we'll drop the charges, right. and it'll, it'll be all over with. Whether you agree with that or not, um, I this is a case where I see that they needed they needed yeah. that person. So we're going to fast forward a little bit, and we're going to bring you to uh, December twelfth of nineteen ninety eight, and this is in the middle of the trial, and. Um, I, I found this interesting because uh, this is centers around the lie detector test. And so I'm going to read you this article. Uh, FBI agent testifies uh, suspect blank failed lie detector test. So an FBI agent testified in court Wednesday that accused multiple murderer Daniel blank failed a lie detector test on the day he was arrested in Texas. Near the end of a day-long hearing on a motion to suppress the video and audio tape confessions of Blank, Assistant District Attorney Charles Chucklong asked FBI agent David Sparks of Houston, Texas, why he questioned Blank after administering the polygraph test to him in Onalaska, Texas, on November of 1997. Sparks said he wanted to find out why Blank had problems with the test. Did you find out, Long asked? No, he didn't tell me why he failed the test, Sparks replied. Defense attorney Glenn Cortello immediately objected, arguing the results of the polygraph examinations are not admissible in court. Long countered that Cortello and his co-counsel, Andy Van Dyke, contended in their motion to suppress evidence that police officers lied to Blank about the results of the test in order to get him to confess. Therefore, Long said he had the right to show blank failed the test, and there was no reason for detectives to lie to him about the results. 23rd Judicial District Judge John Patevin did not immediately rule on the issue. Ascension Parish Sheriff Detective Mike Tony and St. John the Baptist Sheriff Detective Todd Email testified in length Wednesday about the 12 hours they questioned blank in the six slangs and two attempted murders in Ascension. Blank is charged with murdering Victor Rossi of San Ma and Lillian Philippi, 71, of Gonzales, and attempting to murder Leonce and Joyce Millett, both 66 at the time they were assaulted on their home in the outskirts of Gonzales. In St. John, John Parish, he is charged with the killings in Laplace of Joan Brock, 58, and Sam Arcuri, 76, and his wife, Luella, who was 69.
1: Yeah, so y'all, they they they're, trying the cases in ascension parish first and even though there's six victims they can't they they were because they were in different parishes each that's a different jurisdiction they, they have to try them separately
0: yeah he's got to answer for all those right. crimes right. uh separately and then so the very next day something happens i guess daniel blank was getting a little bit nervous. Right. Uh, You know, the
1: prosecution's putting on a heck of a case. Mm-hmm. And this was published on December 11th of 1998. It says suspect and murders attempts to escape by John McMillan of the river parishes bureau. So mild mannered accused multiple murderer Daniel blank Thursday broke out a window in a second floor restroom of the Ascension parish courthouse in Donaldsonville, and leaped to the ground below, where he was a free man for less than a minute. <laughs> now, now, y'all, yeah. y'all take that in,
0: right? You had the River Parish's serial killer break out a window
1: and escape, right? Yeah.
0: So, what are you going to tell than you? How the hell, hell that so happens?
1: With within thirty to forty-five seconds, he was apprehended and back in custody. Ascension Sheriff Jeff Wiley said, "Departmentally, we've responded." in a quick fashion, but it shouldn't have happened. There was a security breach here to an extent. Blank, who usually registers no emotion in his court appearances and is described by his attorneys as very quiet, was being brought into the courthouse for a hearing when the escape attempt occurred. The hearing was on a motion to prevent the use of a videotape confessions he made to six River Parish slayings and two attempted murders. Wiley well, said four correctional officers brought the small, slightly built defendant into the courthouse from the Ascension Parish prison. The, it's funny. I'm going to interrupt so you all understand this. So uh, the Ascension Parish prison is actually outside of Donaldsonville. So Ascension Parish is, is actually split. The Mississippi River splits it yeah. right, right in half. So the, uh, it have the Sunshine Bridge is what they call it. It goes over to where that, and I've been in that prison many, many times. So, handcuffs, leg shackles, and a bulletproof vest were removed from blank in an anteroom between the two courtrooms on the second floor of the old courthouse building to make him presentable for court. Wiley said, uh, After those items were removed, he told officers he had to defecate bad. Wiley said, hmm. <laughs> Two of them walked him back to an area that's used as a jury room or judges' chambers that has a bathroom. They made a decision to let him take care of his business while he said the officers partially closed the bathroom door and blank sat down on a toilet in a stall in rapid fashion. He leaps up and slams the bathroom door shut and locks it and grabs an old antebellum window shutter and breaks the glass and leaps out. All right.
0: I'm going to stop you real quick. You're you're an officer. Yeah. And you're – this dude's taking a shit. The door slams and locks. What's going through your mind? Oh, fuck. I'm about to lose my
1: job. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what. You know, I never I, – I had so many bad guys, especially during the interrogations, et cetera, uh, uh, that I, they – a lot of times they would they get nervous when I had to take a shit right before they give me a confession. And uh, you better believe every one of them, I stood in there with the stall open and I listened to them shit and I watched them shit because yeah. I wasn't taking my eyes off of them. I mean, this dude killed six people, man, and and attempted to kill two more, right? And he just shut locked the door about. on you. And he slammed, that's the old shit moment. Unshackled. <laughs> yeah, unshackled. Yeah. Hey, you can, you can poop with shackles on. Yeah. yeah. But they just fucked up on that one. No they, they, they doubt about it. So. The. <laughs> um, so. He breaks the glass, y'all, and he jumps out, and the sheriff said blank landed on the roof of a one story building adjacent to the courthouse and then jumped to the ground. Sheriff's deputies outside the courthouse spotted him and chased him down. He, right, he didn't I get, could
0: imagine they're they're
1: no, seeing I,
0: this dude jump yeah, on the ground I, yeah. and they're like, uh that's uh, a circular. Like, that's a
1: circular. <laughs> oh my and, god. Uh, so he didn't get far, Wiley said. Blank was then put in the prison van and taken back to jail, Wiley said. The sheriff then called district judge John L. Uh Pate-Tavon, who was conducting the hearing, and the judge asked that Blank be brought back to court to complete the proceedings. The judge's order was carried out, and the hearing, with Blank present, was conducted. The judge said he would study the motion to suppress Blank's confessions before issuing a ruling. So, y'all, this isn't trial. This is one of the many motions to suppress and uh, all kinds of stuff that the defense tries to do. It's a free shot for the defense to find out what the prosecution has. But our, our article continues. It says, later... Blank was examined at Prevost Hospital in Donaldsonville, where it was discovered he had broken a heel bone, the sheriff said. Blank was being treated for his injury at a state hospital that he declined to name. I don't want to blame it, the escape, on an antiquated courthouse, but we've always been at a disadvantage in that old courthouse, Wiley said. It has no bars on the windows. The reality is we have no inmate bathrooms, no inmate holding facility, but the primary cause was our inattention. You don't partially close the door on a murder, murder suspect, the sheriff said. We had sufficient personnel. And our options were to tell him, you can't use the bathroom. But we're all sensitive to his constitutional rights. And they made the call to let him. They should have reshackled him or stayed on each side of him while he used the toilet, while he said. The sheriff said he met with the warden of the parish prison and the supervisor to detail Garden Blank and the I'm looking at some administrative changes. Somebody, somebody's asking fire. Nobody was intentionally derelict, but I've got to make sure the people involved in garden blank are more attentive. The security detail will not be involved with such a defendant in the future. While he said, I hate this for the community and for the victims survivors. The sheriff said the last thing the public should have to worry about is this guy escaping. They should be able to rest comfortably knowing that my department is on top of it. Then what happened leaves a little bit to be desired. It shouldn't have happened. Wiley said. Blanks next court appearance is scheduled Wednesday when Judge Payton when will hear arguments regarding evidence can be presented during the sentencing phase of the trial. Should he be convicted? Now
0: two things, <laughs> and and y'all, you know, it's obviously not funny. Thank God he was mm-hmm. caught. But um and I'm pretty sure somebody probably got shit canned over it, that I deal. Doubt about it. Um, Could you imagine being the one to have to call the sheriff? (laughs) Oh, my God. I
1: mean, I Uh, bet they were all like, I ain't calling him. Right? Uh, uh, I mean, we had it happen. uh,
0: And that's uh, what my second part of this was going to be.
1: Gerald Bordelon and John Priest escaped, which are the two worst we had in the Livingston Parish Jail at the time. And they left left them out on a walkway. Like, for their outside time, Mm -hmm. the the walkway just has that uh, chain-link fence. yeah, And... They had a cart, a maintenance cart. They left from the hallway, and on the maintenance cart, I had a pair of pliers. So when the the guys in the control room aren't paying attention, and there is nobody watching them from the other side, they got the pliers and and snipped the damn fence.
0: Oh and, my! And God. Ran
1: and jumped over and got out.
0: And y'all, one of these individuals on death
1: row right they now. It, they, well, well, one of them is dead uh, on death row. He's the last person executed in the South or, of Louisiana. Or, Yeah, and and John Priest. um, Lured homosexual men into things and robbed them. But the last one, he he robbed. He just got out of jail that day. He robbed him and then pulled all his teeth. So and then set him on fire so his body couldn't be identified. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, he's a bad dude. That dude's evil. So he's doing multiple life sentences, but... Uh, he's but, in bloody Angola? He's in bloody Angola. Sure is. Maybe might have to do a story one day. Yeah. Because yeah. he was a bad... He's a young kid, too. Just fucking evil as fuck. Man. Holy and, shit. Uh, so, yeah, you're I'm pretty sure you're going to have your hands on this cat at all time.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and, um, and so it, whoever that was didn't last long, I'm sure. Now... In any trial, uh, the defense is going to, you know, it's a, you might as well expect it. They're going to do profiles, right. psycho, uh, or rather, um, they're going to get with psychiatrists I and and the, the psychiatrists, yes, do these evaluations and and Daniel Blank was no different. And during the trial, as is standard with pretty much all your violent murder cases. Uh, He undergoes this evaluation with a psychiatrist and was diagnosed with what's known as schizoaffective paranoia disorder. Now, if you're you're wondering what that is, it's a mental health disorder that is marked by a combination of schizophrenia symptoms such as hallucinations and delusions and mood disorder symptoms such as depression or mania. There are two types of. Of schizoaffective disorder, both of which include symptoms of schizophrenia. There are bipolar type, which includes episodes of mania and sometimes major depression, or depressive type, which includes only major depressive episodes. Uh, and they, you know, it affects people differently, according to psychiatrists. Um, it was also discovered that he had a learning dis- disability that hampered his verbal ability as well as his understanding of ad abstract concepts, which is a fancy kind of like psychobabble jargon, basically saying he didn't know how to deal with his emotions like a normal person. Well, whatever. Cry me a fucking river.
1: Right. I mean, I don't give a shit. You killed six people. Every death penalty case, we do. They put on these, you know, the, uh, these ex so-called experts and they come up with the same shit every time. Yeah. What they're trying to do is ultimately, if he's found guilty, they're gonna say, "Hey, look, here's a mitigating circumstance why he shouldn't be put to death because he he doesn't think like the rest of us." And the death penalty phase series one through ten, they did the same thing. Yeah, so they, they brought in two different neuropsychologists and a psychiatrist, and they said the same shit and whatever.
0: Right? Well, and and here's the 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 way I would if I were a prosecutor, kind of poke bullshit in this whole thought processes in regards to his cognitive ability. Uh I would say he probably had some upper level cognitive skills because that's cognitive ability, y'all, is the ability to problem solve, basically. Mm-hmm. This guy was a master mechanic. Yeah. Well, not, that's all about problem not solving. Not only
1: that, he he didn't leave any trace of himself at the, the crime scenes. That shows planning and that he was smart, like I said earlier. That's right. And and he wasn't
0: book smart. As a matter of fact, he only made it to the eighth grade. He, his reading was on a third grade level, they say. But his IQ was an 85, which is on the lower side of normal. And IQ test, you know. Yeah, I'm sure that if I'm facing a death penalty, I can play dumb on an IQ test, too. So so they go through the trial, y'all. And, uh, and eventually... Uh, they come back with a verdict, and that was in what we're going to read you now is the verdict for the Joan Brock case. and uh, and you know, it was a, well, he was sentenced to
1: death. So right. what he so this article is on April eleventh of two thousand. Said a jury took less than forty-five minutes Monday to sentence Daniel Blank to death for the slaying of Laplace housewife, Joan Brock, on May 14, 1997. Saturday it took the same jury seven hours to find Blank guilty of the same murder. Wearing the same wrinkled blue work shirt, tan pants, and tennis shoes that he wore throughout the six day trial, Blank showed no emotion as both decisions were read to him. On the other hand, during the reading of the death penalty decision, several of the jurors were weeping. I feel better now, said Douglas Brock, wooder of Joan Brock, um, as he walked out of St. John Baptist Courthouse in E. Edgar. I really do feel better. Brock's m- murder is one of the six attributed to blank in a 10-month killing spree in 1996 and 1997. He allegedly broke into people's houses to steal money to feed a video poker gambling habit. During the burglaries, six people died. Blank has already been convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of Lillian and Philip, uh, Philippe 71 of Gonzales. And it took 40th Judicial District Judge Sterling Snouty and attorneys 26 days to pick an impartial jury in the Voles Parish. And y'all, that's what they had to move because of the publicity trial of Voles is way upriver. But Snowdy has ordered the jury selection in Marksville because he wanted to get the jury that was not tainted by the publicity surrounding all the homicides. The prosecution led by St. John Parish Assistant District Attorney George N. Uh, Gro- Grognard presented the jury with more than 25 pieces of evidence and 13 witnesses to prove the state's case against Blank. The centerpiece of the prosecution's attack was a four-hour videotape of Blank's confession. Contained in the tape, a sometimes sobbing, Sometimes cool, Blank told detectives Todd Hemel of the St. John Sheriff's Office and Mike Tony of the Ascension Parish Sheriff's Office how he climbed over the fence of the Brock residence in the Riverland Subdivision and hid for several hours in the backyard waiting for the Brock's to leave that morning. When he thought the house was empty, Blank then tried several doors to gain entry into the house. Finding the back door unlocked, he entered and went straight to the bedroom where he knew the Brock's kept the safe. As he was dragging the safe out of the house, he heard a sound, walked around, walked outside and surprised Joan Rock in the backyard. She screamed and in response. Blank stabbed her four times with the butcher knife he had found in her kitchen. Blank then tried to drag Rock's body back into the house, but he couldn't manage it. He then rolled the safe out to his car in the garage and put the safe in the car found the car keys in the kitchen and fled. Blank took over $30,000 and jewelry from the safe. Wow. Yep. She was a nice woman, said a sobbing blank in the videotape. I had nothing against her. She was a sweet woman. Blank, who was looking for money to feed his gambling habit, had worked for Douglas Brock as a mechanic several years before the murder. He felt that Brock had double-crossed him out of back pay, and he knew that there was money in the house. Blank's defense attorney, Glenn Cortello, tried to persuade the jury that Blank could not have lifted the 260-pound safe by himself. However, in a dramatic demonstration, Detective Hemel, dressed in a white jumpsuit, lifted the safe easily and placed it on a small cart. Smart. Right? That counteracts that. Later, in her closing statements, uh said, that Blank could also have easily levered the safe into the car by placing it against the back seat and lifting up.
0: And and its I don't mean to interrupt no, you, probably? but this just occurred to me. This is someone who is used to lifting heavy things, yeah, right. engines yeah, and things right. like that.
1: I'm not saying he picked up engines yeah. by himself, but he's used to lifting yeah. dead weight. Yeah. Well, and also, he went there to get that son of a bitch, and, and he's going to get it out one yeah. way or another. And uh, you'd be surprised what you didn't do after, after you just – murdered somebody then the defense only witness was the fbi polygraph expert david sparks who interviewed blank before he made his um confession to email and tony cortillo argued that sparks had coached blank in the details of the murder prior to the videotape confession sparks admitted to telling blank the time and the date of the murder and the description of the brock house Sparks added he told Blank where the body was discovered and the position of the body. He also told Blank what had been stolen from the house and that the safe had not been recovered. But on cross-examination, Ragnard showed that Sparks had not told Blank other important details about the case, such as the amount of money and the jury in the safe where the car keys were or how weeds and cigarette ashes were found in Brock's car after it was recovered. Douglas Brock had testified that he had just cleaned the car before the murder and that no one in his family smoked. During his tape confession, Blank gave specific instructions to the detectives where to find the safe he had dumped into the bayou about a mile from Sorrento. He also drew a detailed map of the Brock house with the descriptions of his actions. In the backyard near the house, he wrote, Here's where I killed her with, lar- with a large knife. In the closing arguments, Ragnar told the jury that there was specific intent when Blank killed Brock. When he heard her and saw her shadow, why didn't he just leave through the front door? Ragnar asked the jury. No, there was specific intent. He was not going to leave that house without mm. the money. He went out backland, surprised Joan Brock. He hacked her four times with a 20 inch weapon, Tilly is closing. Cortillo's is closing centered on the confession, insisting that the confession had been coerced from Blank and that high had hypnotized Blanken to confessing. He said there is no scientific evidence whatsoever to connect my client to the crime, except for the statement. said Cortillo on the rebuttal. Ragnar told the jury not to be fooled by the smoke. Blank made his confession voluntarily without any pressure from the detectives during the penalty phase of the trial. Several psychiatrists were brought in to testify that Blank does have a mild learning disability and brain dysfunction. But neither of the doctors said that these two factors would impair Blank from committing the crime or from knowing the difference between right and wrong. They said that there was no evidence of any psychosis. During the penalty phase, after conviction, the Brock family testified that the loss of Joan Brock had a devastating effect on the family. The jury was also told at that point about the other five homicides attributed to Blank, which shocked most of the jury since now he had ordered that no mention of the other crimes could be mentioned during the evidentiary phase of the trial. Blank still faced his trial for the 1st three murders of Victor Rossi of St. Amont, Barbara Bourgeois of Paulina, and Sam and Lori, uh, uh, Luella Curie of Laplace. After the sentence was passed, Joan Brock's daughters were asked if the sentence of death had helped their state of mind. And Stephanie Brock Sanchez said, "We feel a little better about things, but it'll never be the same." Added Stacy Brock Sardinia, "We don't have a mother anymore." Wow, you know, that's powerful. And yeah. again, all that. So, what happened? Um, like the psychiatrist and and the other crimes cannot be admitted as evidence of this dude being a badass during the guilt phase of the trial, all right? Yeah. And once they, they – just the facts on on that murder. After that, when you go into the death penalty phase, that's when the guns come out. You can get to any prior criminal history uh, acts and statements and, and the facts show, showing that, hey, this dude gets out, they're going to do it again.
0: That's right. And uh, so he did get sentenced to death. and And eventually, just to fast forward there – uh, he was convicted of uh, convicted and sentenced to death in that murder of Joan Brock, uh, Lillian Phillippe, He was also sentenced to death by lethal injection for uh, the Arcuries. Uh, he took a plea on those and pled guilty to two counts of first degree murder and was sentenced to two irrevocable life sentences. Uh, so he was, you know, when it when all the dust settled there. Uh, he was convicted of of everything he did, including two death sentences. Right. Uh, but there was a pro. You know, anytime you're dealing with the judicial system, and especially when you get sentenced to the death penalty, uh, you can believe there's going to be uh, 20 years of appeals right. and and. Right. Uh, relooking at evidence and right.
1: fighting it. One of the reasons he took a plea on the other cases is because he figures it's easier to fight two death penalty charges and um uh, than it is to fight six. Yeah, and, and he was able to concentrate on those. Um, so he, you know, he he
0: gets sentenced to bloody Angola. He's right. serving his time. He's one death threat. On death row, he's, you know, doing his appeals, as is sadly standard standard, uh, these days. And uh, on February 17th of 2016, he was granted a stay of execution. Uh, And I'll just read you the quick article on that. A, A stay of execution has been granted for convicted serial killer Daniel Blank by the Louisiana Supreme Court on Wednesday. Convicted serial killer Daniel Blank, 53, as of that time, was scheduled to be executed on March 14th. However, officials with the Louisiana Department of Public Safety and Corrections stated they do not have the drugs necessary to carry out the execution. A state of execution is court ordered to temporarily, temporarily suspend the execution of a court judgment or other court order. Uh, and it goes into, uh, you know, all of the people that he killed. Um, but they were having a problem with mm. with the drugs that they still, uh, they still supposedly do. have a problem with. Yeah. Um, and so... It won't be a problem anymore. You know... Jeff
1: Landry just got elected governor, and he's a very st- uh, pro-death penalty. That's and right. He's, gonna, he's about to end all that. So... He's still appealing,
0: right? And and uh, and he got that stay of execution. And one of the things that he tries to work on these appeals is uh, is they were basically trying to say he was misled into why they wanted to meet in the first place. The police, remember, in in episode in the prior episode, we told you that they went, meaning the detectives went to Texas to formally interview him, I guess you could say. Um, And they released some of that transcript. And so I'll read you a little bit of that because it's interesting. And uh, we'll get Woody's thoughts on it. So the detective says, do you think we traveled this distance to speak to you about casino winnings? Uh, Do you think that's legitimately why we're here? And Daniel Blank says, well, basically – you wanted to know where I got all my money from, you know, and that's why I gave him the papers, uh, meaning the papers documenting the money he had won at the casino. The detective then says, well, we we want both. Both of us took a good number of notes, and we've been speaking to you for about an hour and a half now. And Daniel Blank says, uh-huh. And the detective says, every single question that we asked you, we knew the answer to and we do that for one reason, to see if you're going to lie to us. Sound accurate, Woody right, Everton? absolutely. So it sounds like this detective knew what he was doing. Uh, Daniel Blank says, right. And the detective continues, there is a few points that you did, and there is a few things that you did uh, withhold from us. We're not going to ask you a question that we don't know the answer to already. Right. Daniel Blank says, yeah. And the detective says, we've been doing this for far too long, and we're pretty good at what we do. And Daniel says, right. And the detective says, and we're not going to come here half-stepping, and I'm not going to travel five hours and come speak to you without having all my ducks in a row. Mm -hmm. The detective then says, okay, you have absolutely no idea why we're here uh, to speak to you. Is that what you're telling us? And Daniel says, "Uh, well, you want to know where I get my money from? And the detective says, "Have you ever been questioned or spoken to by any other sheriff's office in the past for any crimes that have taken place?" And Daniel says, "Oh, I was called in about that deal about uh, Rossi." And the detective says, A "Rossi homicide?" And he says, "Yeah." And um, and so that's that's. Uh, that's just kind of an example of how he was playing dumb. Yeah. He was—he knew. Right. He knew exactly why they were there. He's a the guy that killed these people. Right. Um, but he's totally playing stupid, but that's also a great example of detective work that
1: they were letting him know. We already know they're, the they're, answers to the questions. They're working. establishing psychological control over him and preparing to cut off any uh, denials, etc. And that's one of the things you do. you got to immediately cut off his denials. Now you give them enough rope to hang themselves and say whatever. And then they were like, "Mm, you weren't there. Bullshit.
0: Right. And, and, uh, so then they continue on and then it's the FBI agent. And if you remember in the last episode, he not only interrogated, uh, uh, Daniel blank, but he also did the polygraph. So the, uh, The FBI agent is talking to him, and he says, "Uh, you bet it's okay. But something occurred, and you decided you wanted more in your life. You thought you could take it the easy way. You thought you could get some money from somebody. And Daniel Blank says no. And then the FBI agent says, and then something happened. And Daniel says, "Uh uh-uh. And then the FBI agent says, and when you went in there, and he's talking about Joan Brock's residence, when you went in there, oh, don't shake your head. I know you don't uh, deny it, okay? He's, he's
1: cutting off the denials.
0: Yeah, so the investigation has been going on for six months, son, okay? This didn't happen yesterday. We didn't just come down here in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we We want to know what's going on. We already know what's going on. What we're trying to figure out is why, because why this occurred is important. I don't know, Daniel Blank says, and then he says, I want you to tell me, Daniel, don't sit there and shake your head now. Come on. Let's be honest with each other, okay? Let's be honest with each other. It's time to have a meeting of the minds, okay? Mm -hmm. It's time for you to sit down and accept what you've done. Accept what you've done and let it go, okay? And Daniel Blank says, "How can I accept something I ain't done?" Oh, yeah. And he says, "Yeah, yeah, but you have, you did, okay." And I, when you say you can't accept something you hadn't done, that's good, okay, because that means in reality, uh, you going, you, you're gonna say, "I can't accept, I didn't do it because I did do it." That's what you're trying to tell me in your own streetwise way. That's what you're trying to tell me. Something happened. Something occurred in your life 16 months, 18 months ago. Something made you snap all the way to here. I don't think it was drugs. I think it was something you said, I have to take care of my family, and I have to take care of my family now. And the time has come for me to take care of my family. You decided there that you would take the easy way out. You didn't
1: plan on hurting anybody, did you? Right, and then giving a chance to. Save so, what the do base. you think about that? I think it's genius, uh, exactly what I, was, I said. That you got to cut off any denials. You're establishing rapport. You're not totally going above as aboard uh, as ash yet because you don't want to scare them off. You know, look, a good homicide interrogation doesn't even start until after five hours. That's yeah. when you start to get the juice wow. you start to break people down I mean people yeah. don't realize how long it takes them. I mean, one of the things I would have been said was uh, uh, at a certain point you, you know if you stick in and, and you get them to change the story blah 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 and you stick in I'd be like, mm, you know what homie uh, the next time I ask you a question if you feel like you have to lie to me then I'll say a fucking word because then you're gonna you're gonna insult my intelligence and and then I'm gonna have to insult you. Yeah. And and as you give them that thing, like, let's stay on the same page. I can help you, but don't keep fucking with me. Right.
0: And then exactly. And another thing came out in uh, these appeals, and that was uh, obviously in the appeal, one of the things that the police are trying to say is we knew he did it because he knew details that we never released right, to the right. public. Only the, the killer would have right. known about that. Right. And when we interrogated him, he br- he brought them up. Right. So what he's going to read uh, y'all, a part of the interrogation where he's talking about Miss uh, Phillippe's uh, death right. and right. exactly what took place in that
1: death that I, th- I thought you might may find right. interesting. Right. So um, Daniel Blank says, Then I went back in and turned the light back on and started looking some more. And I didn't find anything, so I gave up on it. And when I come out, I turned the light off. And when I come out, that's when I saw something swinging at me. And the text says, you saw something swinging at you? And Blank says, well, I saw a shadow of something. The light was off. The only light on was, I think, the bathroom light. And when I saw something coming at me with the shadow of the bathroom light and Uh, Just put my arm up And then I grabbed it And um, pushed her And uh, the detective says When you say you saw something swinging at you Was it a person? Blank Yeah It was the woman Swinging something at me I don't know if it was a lamp Um, I didn't see it I just grabbed it And it could have been a lamp It could have been a trophy It kind of felt more like a trophy I, I don't know if it could have been One of them little skimpy lamps I don't know and well, that's when I pushed her, pushed her. And then um, she comes at me with, a, I don't know if it was a knife or one of them letter openers or something. I don't remember what it was. I didn't see it. detective says, she had it in her hand? Blank says, yeah. That's when I hit her with the thing I had in my hand. And then I grabbed it and I cut her with the knife. I don't remember where I cut her or at how I did it. It just happened so fast. Just I just freaked out then. And I left after that. Detective, all right. So you're saying while you was in the closet, you heard some noise, and you turned the light out in the closet. Blank says right. Texas says, and then you wait a little while, and you turn the light back on. And Blank says no. I turned the light off when I heard a noise, and then I kind of opened the closet door and peeked out, and I didn't see anything or didn't hear anything, and I waited a couple seconds and. Then I closed the door back and turned the light back on. And uh, then when I was ready to get out, after I had looked around and uh, they had all kinds of stuff in there, I, I kind of emptied the drawers out and stuff like that and didn't find anything. And I just decided to leave. Texas says, okay. And Blank says, and then when I come out, that's when I turned the light off and opened the door and come out. That's when she was standing there and uh, she had something in her hand and swung it at me. And Texas, and you took it away from her? Blank says, I put you know my hand up like that and it hit me on the arm and then I grabbed it and pushed her on back onto the bed, and then she grabbed something off in of the table, something coffee table, and it could have been a knife or it could have been one of them letterovers. I don't remember. detective, Okay. So when she went to grab this, you had this trophy. Blank says, She come up. The text says, Or lamp in your hand. And Blake says, yeah. She come up and all I seen was like a shadow because I wasn't there. There was no light. And she was, the light was where I shined in front of the bathroom and the bathroom door wasn't all the way open. It was kind of cracked. And uh, well, then she come back at me with the knife and um, I tried to grab it, but I, I couldn't see her. Her arm to grab it. And I just kind of ducked to the side and I hit her with the thing that I had, had in my hand. Well, the text says, what part of the body did you hit? He says, I think it hit her in the head. I ain't sure. And Blank says, I think that's where I hit her. And the text says, And what did she do? Blank says, Well, after that, I pushed her and then I grabbed her hand with a knife and I know I cut her. I don't know where, but uh." the text says, Was she standing up when you cut her? Or, and then Blank interrupts and says, No, she was laying on the, I think she was, she had, when I pushed her, she was laying across the bed or at the edge of bed. And um, after that, I did that, and I, then I left. And Texas says, but you hit her with the knife, too, then? Blank says, yeah. And Texas says, okay, you left. Blank says, I, uh, I grabbed her arm or hand or something and went back with it. And then I took the knife, and I ain't positive, but I think I hit her twice with it. I ain't sure. I don't remember. It just happened so fast. And I was just scared, and I just took out and left. So." Now you're going to know all those details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah, didn't do it. I call it that. It, said, it tells me this guy's smart. He's actually replaying in his mind. Mm-hmm. He's saying it. it's not like he's reading a script. He's like, oh, yeah, that's right, because the bathroom light was on. It wasn't this light, right? It was the yes. bathroom light. And then I saw something coming at me, and it tried to freak me out, and I grabbed it. And I don't know if it was a lamp or it was a trophy maybe. And and But he's thinking. He, He's not totally clear on everything, but he knows enough. like I said, so she was standing when you stabbed her and he's was like, No, no, she was laying on the bed. Yeah. Why would you say that? Right. Why would you make that up? And and the the detective questioning
0: him, you know, he he already knows where she was stabbed and all these things. What he's what you're I would imagine what you're doing at this point is trying to build a case. You're, to so you're, him to confirm, you're proving that he knew confirm
1: the, the evidence that you have.
0: Yeah, so uh, uh, good job by them, and then uh, you know one other thing that came o- up on the appeal, and a good thing to ask you, Woody, is the polygraph itself, and and uh, and Daniel Blank tried to say that. You know,
1: he didn't know he could get out of a polygraph. Yeah, for sure. they, 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 you have polygraph rights, they read the T before every exam.
0: There you go. And and here was just a short conversation that took place between him and and uh, the detectives when they asked him to submit to a polygraph. Daniel Blank, what choice do I have? Detective, well, it it's your choice. I mean, uh, and then the other detective says, it's your choice. And Daniel Blank says, if I refuse it, then what? And the detective says, that's your prerogative. I mean, this is something that we ask you before, uh, if you're responsible for committing to these homicides, and you stated no. And Daniel Blank says, I mean, if I refuse it, then what are y'all going to do to me? And the detective says, well, i got to be honest with you. If you're looking from a investigative standpoint— It doesn't look too good. I mean, but that's only my opinion. I mean, that's just my opinion. Uh, Daniel Blank says, Well, what I'm saying is if I refuse to take the polygraph, what are you going to do? You're going to arrest me? And the detective says, You're not under arrest. So you 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 have have that conversation, conversation. it's recorded. Right. That proves they—they're that right. telling you they're not threatening to right. arrest they you. They never
1: threatened. They're it. just yeah. saying they don't and look he, good he if keeps, you refuse, and it, it didn't. They—they well, they weren't lying about that. Let me tell you something: getting people past, giving permission for the polygraph is probably the hardest thing today, especially the guilty people. Yeah. Now there's two kinds of people to take the test: the ones who take it because they know they can pass it, and the ones who take it like Daniel Blank because they know their ass is in a crack and they're hoping by some miracle that you know they'll show no deception indicated. That's right. And,
0: and so long story short, he exhaust his appeals and now he's in a position where he is just awaiting, uh, his
1: death. Always coming in bloody, bloody and God. He's on the road. And guess what? He was one of the ones, um, that did this recent clemency push or whatever, uh, f- pushed for clemency hearings. But, uh, you know, Time is up, and the new sheriff's in town, per se, with Jeff Landry coming in because he's the one that's been fighting the governor to, about And the governor basically in the end came out and said he, he didn't believe in executions and all that. But I'm going to give a shout-out to investigators. Sheriff Jeff yes. Wiley, Ascension Paris, look, great guy. Um, I actually did my internship my for my polygraph license uh they they had a certified polygraph examiner by this time, uh, Greg Landry, and Jeff Wiley had to prove it. I had to go over there every week and stuff and work with this uh, one of his detectives uh, who yeah. was a, a polygraph guy. Look in Ascension Parish, Sheriff's Office, one of the best, one of the best uh, um, equipment wise and training wise and everything else. And Mike Tony was has been there forever. He might he's got to be retired now, but I knew him and worked cases with him. Uh, but he was the lead investigator on the case in uh, for Ascension Parish. And then Willie Martin, uh who is the sheriff of St. James Parish, a great guy, shout out. And Sid Berthelot was the first responding officer in of Saint James Parish. Shout out to him. And Todd uh Hamel was the lead investigator for Saint John Parish. Shout out. I mean, not that often they get to work these. And CJ Destor was the investigator for Saint John Parish who assisted. And Dal Bryn, the investigator for the Gonzales Police, I don't I don't believe he's there any longer. Um and Dan Funk, who was the FBI special agent, and that, these guys wrote probably one of the most prolific serial killers you never heard about.
0: Absolutely, and yeah, uh, yeah. so shout out to the just amazing detective work by a lot of those guys, and and uh, and something very admirable. If you know any of those guys, and and they're still around, and and uh, would like to.
1: Do an interview with us. We'd love to have yeah. him on, sit down and talk to him. I, I think Sheriff Wiley is a senator now, the, uh, or a senator or congressman or something. Not met congressman, but I saw him uh, at the Chamber of Commerce when I did the Chamber of Commerce. And Where did you? He was, he, he was with Jason, okay. uh, uh, Sheriff Ward. Well, that'd and, be great and if J- we get him said, on. you remember... Uh, uh, Jeff Wiley, I said, Sheriff, yeah, I remember and I told him <laughs> about the polygraph thing, he laughed, and well, he was out in Caitlin Adell's case and all the all the big cases in yeah. the years, but he's since retired and moved on.
0: You know, our, we want to remember the victims that yes. of these cases and, yeah. and I'm sure there's a lot of family, family out there that yeah, are listening to this is, right now. Right, yeah. Matter of fact, I know one in particular that her, her cousin was involved in this, so shout out to you. Um, and Victor Rossi, Barbara Bourgeois, Lillian Philippi, Sam Akuri, Luella Akuri, Joan Brock, all murdered. Uh, but your
1: inner thoughts and prayers and your families. Yeah, it's a ripple of fagging time. Someone's murdered that people just hear the headlines of the, of the murder victims, but it, every one of them have families.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Leon and Joyce Millet, who, yeah. uh, who were not killed, they were,
1: they were survivors. And I'm sure they have family still out there. I don't... Yeah, and Patron members, thank you again for your support, y'all. Go to com and type in Bloody Angola. Um, we've got a bunch of different levels, a bunch of different, you know, ways that things that you can get for showing us support the Patron. If you can't be a Patron member, get it. We love it and appreciate all y'all. Please go leave us reviews and like and share and, and help us continue to grow. Hey, and we are – or twenty twenty-three, Bloody Angola. Bloody Angola won the best history podcast in the world. In the world. Because of y'all. You rock. Because of y'all, that's right. And uh
0: and we appreciate that so much. So until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. I'm Woody Everton. Your host of Bloody Angola. A podcast 142 years in the making.
1: Complete story of America's bloodiest prison.
0: Peace. Peace.
2: I walk a straight line, shackle and chain. Oh, gruesome is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hillstring Gang, a wrangle three.